The scripture lesson this morning is found in Genesis chapter 32, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 21. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy the least of all of the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. With only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered from multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, Twenty female donkeys and ten male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first. When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again give you thanks for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us in such a marvelous way. And that it's through stories that you impress the gospel evermore upon our hearts and lives. Indeed, may your spirit direct us in the truth now that we might understand more fully and deeply Uh, This story from Genesis 32 this day. We ask for your spirit's help to this end and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Every so often I entertain the thought of preaching a series of sermons addressing misunderstood characters or stories in the Bible, texts often mistakenly interpreted, but their interpretations have become so ingrained in our thinking that we just naturally think of these texts in this fashion. Typically, these passages are read too moralistically, and not enough attention is given to important details, and so erroneous conclusions are reached, or a character in Scripture is unjustly criticized by what we add to the text. And I realize that biblical interpretation can be a tricky thing, and good men will differ, but it's vitally important when we are reading and studying the Scriptures for us to endeavor to rightly divide it, and for us to let the text tell us what it says and not assume we know what it says or bring our presuppositions to it um, to the point that it colors our reading of the text. And I'm aware of the fact that we can't be purely objective as finite human creatures, so we ask for the Holy Spirit to direct us in the truth, to, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that understand and perceive God's Word. Thankfully, He'll do that. Now, perhaps more than any other character in Scripture, I would argue, Jacob gets a bum rap. You know, he's portrayed as a, a deceiver who tricks Esau out of his birthright, but then who gets what he deserves when he goes and lives with Uncle Laban, who deceives him by giving him the wrong wife on his wedding night, which, of course, causes us to ask a lot more questions than we have time to consider today. But that Laban's wedding switcheroo was payback for what Jacob did to Esau or something like that, and so Jacob's reaping what he's sown. Well, I would contend, and fairly strongly, that that's not what the Bible says largely about Jacob. And I realize we almost need to go back to Genesis 25 and start there in the study in order to properly get to chapter 32. But that's not the plan for today. Though, I want to remind you or draw attention to one of the key texts that should shape how we interpret Jacob's life, and that's Genesis chapter 25 and verse 27. A right understanding and interpretation of this verse is profoundly important because the rest of the Jacob story hinges on it. The ESV reads, When the boys grew up, so they're older, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Now, how have you commonly heard this verse portrayed? Esau was a man's man, the hunter outdoorsy type, and Jacob was more domestic, he hung around the tents all day and was a mama's boy, you know, something like that. But that's not a correct description of Jacob at all, and it's baffling to me how scholars will actually go out of their way to not say what the text says about him or skip over it entirely. Where the ESV reads that Jacob was a quiet man, the word literally means blameless, perfect, or mature. In other words, Jacob was a righteous man. And this word doesn't mean he was sinless, of course not, but this is precisely the same word that is used to describe Noah in Genesis 6-9, where the ESV reads, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Commentators and translators have no problem calling Noah blameless, but balk when the exact same word is used of Jacob. Similarly, in the book of Job, this same term is used three times to describe Job in the opening chapters, each time translated blameless by the ESV. Jacob is a blameless man. He's a righteous man. And that description, in fact, must inform our reading of what follows in his obtaining the birthright later in the chapter. Also, the detail that Jacob dwells in tents means that he's aligning himself with the faith of Abraham as a sojourner in the land. Genesis 12, 8. After building an altar, Abraham pitched his tent 
with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. 13.3, And Abraham journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. 13.18, So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. 18.1, And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And there's plenty more evidence from Genesis 25 that we could consider along these lines. But again, we've got to listen to the text first and set aside our psychologizing or moralizing of the text. Otherwise, we'll likely come to exactly the wrong conclusion the text wants us to reach. Now, again, there's, there's quite a bit more detail about what could be said. But when we read the Jacob narrative, we should understand that he pictures Christ, that he's a suffering servant who is having to deal with these varying level of varying levels of brother-to-brother relationships, whether it's initially with Esau, even in the womb, and then Laban, and now Esau again. And I realize we're skipping huge chunks of Jacob's life that are significant to developing this understanding of the narrative. But basically, as we now come to Genesis 32, we should understand that Jacob's been in exile of sorts in Nahor, engaged in an ongoing conflict with, with the tyrant Laban. And for all the difficulties that he's endured for the past 20 years, all of that was to prepare him for what he next encounters as he enters back into the promised land. Jacob crossed the river, the Euphrates, when he left Paddan Aram, which means that he's in the outer regions of the promised land, according to the Lord's word to Abraham in Genesis 15, 18. And as he now draws even closer to the promised land proper, he encounters angels the significance of which we'll consider momentarily. Now, maybe you're wondering, why give our attention to Jacob today and and the next few Sundays? Well, it's to give us another picture of the theme of striving that we encountered in the final section of Colossians, where you'll remember that Paul describes Epaphras as always striving on behalf of you in the prayers so that you may stand mature and having been fully persuaded in all the will of God, For I testify for him that he has much pain on behalf of you and those in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. See, in Jacob, we have an example of what that looks like. And stories and narrative have a certain power, make a certain impression. And so I trust the Holy Spirit will use this text to those ends today. Now, this morning, we'll give our attention to the first part of what constitutes a larger story. A good case can be made for examining all of chapters 32 and 33 in one fell swoop as they really make up the whole of the story. Granted, uh, chapter 32, verses 22 to 32 are the most famous, recounting Jacob's wrestling with God, but it's set in between Jacob's preparing to meet Esau and then encountering him. One proposed structure, uh, how these chapters um, neatly fit and are related, um, and it's a, a chiastic form, is that God establishes his camp at the beginning of verse 32, And then Jacob establishes a camp toward the end of chapter 33. Jacob prepares to wrestle with Esau, 32.3-21. And then Jacob wrestles Esau, 33.1-17. And so then at the center is Jacob wrestling with God in chapter 32, verses 22-32. So there's there's continuity. And it would be be beneficial sometimes just to read chapters 32 and 33 in succession. But given the breadth and richness that's here, we're, we're compelled to break, them, break down the text into smaller sections. And even our text this morning, it has its own chiastic structure to it as uh, Jacob's preparations to meet Esau, 
bracket his prayer in verses 9 through 12. So what is here for our faith this morning? In what ways does the first part of this story speak to our experience and the life of striving to which we are also called? Well, let's, let's enter into the narrative and find out. Verse 1 connects us back to the previous chapter where Laban's departure back home is recorded. Now we read that Jacob went on his way and is met by angels of God. This seems somewhat abrupt. And we aren't given a lot of other context or information about Jacob's encounter. But as Jesus was ministered to by angels after his wilderness experience, so here Jacob experiences something similar. And this encounter should send us back to chapter 28 and the dream and vision at Bethel of the angels ascending and descending the stairway between heaven and earth. Jacob encountered angels on his way out of the promised land, and now he's encountering them again on his way back in. And something we need to immediately understand is that these references to camps isn't along the lines of recreational camping uh, that some of us have participated in, but camps of an army, an angelic army. Jacob sees armies of angels and says as much, even calling the place Mahanaim, two camps. What two camps means is somewhat debated, but it seems best to understand it as two camps of angels indicating that Jacob is well protected, that he's surrounded by angels, that he has angels going ahead of him and angels protecting him from behind. And perhaps this even hints ahead to the angelic protection Israel will receive as we read about in Exodus 14 and later in Isaiah 52 and 58. Certainly it also indicates that Jacob's struggles and conflicts aren't simply against flesh and blood but that he's involved in a much larger conflict than meets the eye, that he's participating in the continuing war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, even as that battle has manifested itself in his experiences. But the encounter with the angels as Jacob returns to the promised land also seems to represent a return to the Garden of Eden, a return to the sanctuary, so to speak. As you recall, the cherubim, angelic creatures, guarded the entrance to the garden. There seem to be angels guarding the way back into the sanctuary land. But Jacob is allowed to enter. Why? Because he successfully battled Laban. Consider that Jacob was commissioned. He was given an identity and promises at Bethel and then sent on to Paddan Aram, which proved to be 20 years of conflict with his tyrannical uncle. Taking that into account, we can be more fully, uh, we can more fully understand what's happening here in chapter 32 when we, as one pastor observes, look through the lens of Christ and his life. First, you may recall that in his baptism, Jesus was declared to be God's son. Being God's son meant that all of the promises to be the Lord of the world were given to him. He would be the second and last Adam. He would even be the Lord over the angels, as God had always intended for man. After the declaration and its attendant promises, the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness to do battle with the devil. Jesus goes into a wrestling match, which is part of his larger battle. After this battle, the angels are sent to minister to him. Jacob, as a foreshadowing of Christ, has gone into battle and won out in the untamed world, outside the land of Eden, as it were. Now, the angels come and minister to him. He's maturing to be the man, the new Adam who will again access back, who will gain access back to the garden and will rule over the angels. And as Jacob has become battle-tested by his experience with Laban, that's prepared him for more battle, which is what he essentially prepares for in relation to Esau. 
See, Jacob is being transformed from one stage of glory to another, as Paul mentions to the Corinthians. But he's being so transformed from battle to battle. God's plan is to make man mature. Being mature is that state in which man is made glorious or glorified. The way maturity comes about is through various trials and struggles. It's through wrestling with situations, hardships, difficult decisions, etc., that we become mature. This is what's happening in Jacob's life. He has won one victory so that he might be prepared for the next battle. As he goes through these things and prevails, he becomes more and more mature. Well, how, how does Jacob prepare for Esau? He sends out angels of his own. He sends out messengers. It's the same word. And what are we immediately told about Esau? That he's Jacob's brother and that he's in the land of Seir, the country of Eden. And as astute readers, the mention of Edom sends our minds back to chapter 25, where Esau says to Jacob, let me eat some of the, that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Edom sounds like the Hebrew word for red, and now Esau has a country named after him. He's become a nation, even as Yahweh told Rebekah when her twins were warring in her womb. Given that information, the fact that the last you read of Esau in Genesis 27 is that he's ready to murder Jacob, we have no reason to believe that things have changed. Maybe he has cooled off, as Rebekah hoped. But in verses 4 and 5, Jacob sends a message with his messengers. And what does that message convey? Well, first of all, notice that Jacob refers to himself as Esau's servant. He's taking a position of humility. Second, he mentions that he's been sojourning with Laban, and he'd stayed there until now. A simple explanation of why he's been gone for 20 years. And maybe Esau was familiar with the kind of guy Uncle Laban was. Third, he mentions that he possesses five things. Oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. Five is the number of power, the number of the hand, but Jacob is also indicating that he doesn't want anything from Esau. He doesn't want war. He's not going to try to take anything from Esau by force. Jacob will wait patiently for the Lord to give it to him. Jacob simply wants safe passage through the land to get where he wants to go. As one theologian observes, Jacob recognizes where he is. He recognizes that the land is dominated by Esau at this time. He recognizes that Esau is lord of the land. This is not how it always be, but this is how it is at this time. Jacob is exercising the same kind of wisdom as, as did his father Isaac when dwelling in Gerar and having to deal with the Philistines. He, he seeks to keep the peace. John Calvin notes, By this example we are taught in what way we are to cultivate peace with the wicked. The Lord does not indeed forbid us to defend our own right, so far as our adversaries allow, but we must rather recede from that right than originate contention by our own fault. Boiling that down, don't go looking for a fight. Don't instigate things. There's a place for self-defense, but as much as we're able, we strive to be at peace with all men. In verse 6, the messengers return, and there's no mention of Esau's reaction or response to Jacob's message, only that Esau is coming to meet Jacob with 400 men. Why is Esau coming with 400 men? That's a larger force than Abraham's back in Genesis 14 when he rescued Lot from the kings of the east. Maybe he's coming simply to escort Jacob through his territory, but that doesn't seem likely. The number four pictures the four corners of the earth, and 400 is four times 100. So the symbolism could be that an army from the whole realm of Edom is coming to meet Jacob. Jacob's response of fear in verse 7 is perfectly understandable, and his reaction is to prepare for battle. 
Notice what he does. He divides the peoples with him into two camps. Where did he get the idea for that? Well, from God. From the two angel forces he just encountered. He's clearly seeking to avoid complete annihilation as Jacob's reasoning is given in verse 8. But there's a sense in which he's committing each of his camp to the angelic armies he, uh, he saw. He forms a Mahanaim of his own. He takes his cues from the heavenly pattern, which is usually a good idea. Now we come thematically to the center of our text this morning where Jacob teaches us to pray. These four verses are rich with instruction and they too follow a chiastic pattern. Notice that Jacob sets forth God and his promise in verse 9, declares his position and condition in verses 10 and 11, and then returns to God and his promise in verse 12. So at the center is his petition, what he's pleading with God to do, but it's bracketed, it's sandwiched in between God's character and what he's said he'd do. See, this is a covenant prayer. And where does Jacob begin? Appealing to Yahweh, the God of his father Abraham and his father Isaac. This is a God he has history with, that, that has a long-standing relationship with his family and him. And Jacob is appealing to that relationship. When Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father, those first words reflect a relationship too, don't they? even a covenant relationship on account of what Jesus the Son accomplished and because we are in relationship with the Father on account of Him. So Jacob appeals to the relationship, but he also appeals to Yahweh's command and promise from back in chapter 31 and before. Yahweh, you said to return, and so I am. And you said to return so that you might do good unto me. But Esau is bearing down on me with bad intentions. Certainly Jacob remembers Yahweh's, uh, Yahweh's Emmanuel promise from 28.15, and is seeking his protective presence. But then notice the manner in which Jacob portrays his position and condition in verses 10 and 11. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of covenant love and the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. Again, Jacob is taking a humble position and stating all that he has is a result of God's promised grace, his promised favor and faithfulness. The word faithfulness can also be translated truth. For only with my staff I crossed over this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. I left this land with, with just a walking stick, and now have two armies comprised of servants and flocks and so forth, and it's all from your hand, Lord. In verse 11, Jacob gets the specifics of his petition. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. Understand, this is not the appeal of a carnal man, someone who's seeking to save, um, to only save his own skin for his accumulated wealth. No, this petition is a prayer of faith. Jacob recognizes the position that he's been given in God's plan of redemption. He understands the place that his wife and children also have in that plan. And if Esau wipes them all out, then God's promises will be compromised. And be sure to notice that Jacob isn't standing passively by as did Adam in the garden. Now, he's actively seeking to protect his brides and their seed from the serpent Esau, who is bearing down upon them. Jacob sees suffering ahead at the hands of Esau and is asking to be delivered from it. But also take note of Jacob's admission of fear, and that his fear doesn't mean an absence of faith, nor does the dread of suffering mean he is without faith. No, but that fear and dread... We notice that, that fear and dread don't ultimately determine his actions. 
In verse 12, he appeals back to God and his promises. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Yahweh, this is what you promised. But if Esau comes and wipes out my wife and kids and me, that promise won't be fulfilled. See, praying God's promises back to him is the heart of all prayer. And despite his fears, Jacob acts according to the promises of God. Jacob acts according to faith. He prays to the Lord who never becomes weary to continue and increase his acts of kindness, as John Calvin puts it. So having prayed, Jacob returns to his preparations for Esau in verses 13 to 21. Interestingly, the text tells us two times in verses 13 and 21, respectively, that Jacob spent the night there. So bookending this last section. And what does Jacob do? Well, he prepares a gift, a tribute, translated present, for Esau with what he has on hand, with the resources immediately available to him. A tribute is a gift offered to a king. It's the same word for tribute offering that we find in Leviticus. It's the same word used to describe Cain's offering in Genesis 4. Jacob is recognizing Esau as the ruler of Edom. And what is the content of that tribute? An offering of five things. Goats, sheep, camels, cows, and donkeys. Remember, five is a sign of power. So there's a symbolic transfer of power uh, to Esau, we might say. Jacob is humbling himself before Esau's power and offering up these five things that are a picture of Jacob's power. He's seeking to mollify Esau by sending these gifts ahead. What does Jacob know and remember about his brother? He's a man of base and beastly appetites. Jacob is exercising a, a measure of wisdom in dealing with his brother. And think about this, when you, when you add up all of the numbers of the animals that make up Jacob's tribute to Esau, the total is over 550. Jacob is parting with, he's giving away a significant portion for what he'd labored for the last six years under Laban. Now, maybe he was so extraordinarily wealthy that this was only a small dent in his overall wealth, but I doubt it. The camels alone were a small fortune in that day and time. Jacob is having to part with some of the very wealth that Yahweh had blessed him with. He's giving up these riches in order to appease Esau. He's giving up some of his own glory. And even the way in which Jacob clearly orders the servants to go in five separate groups instead of all at once indicates what Jacob thinks of Esau's character. He hopes to satisfy his brother by gradually giving the gifts. You know, if he gives them all at once, Esau, who lives only for the present, might be like the kid on Christmas morning who rips through all of his gifts right away and then is discontent with what He's received. Instead, Jacob paces the gifts in this way so that Esau can't glut himself so easily. Now, there are a number of interesting word plays and phrases used throughout this text that are obscured in the English. But one that emerges here and will be significant in the next section as well is the use of the word face. In verse 20, uh, verse 20 literally reads something like this. And you shall also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he, that is Jacob, said, I will cover his face with the tribute offering that walks before my face, and afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will lift up my face. Our translations catch the meaning of the text, but the, the plays on words here are important. You see, Jacob is seeking to cover the face of Esau, appease him. Then he sees God face to face in the next section and names the place Peniel, face of God. Then when he meets Esau in chapter 33, he tells him that he has seen Esau's face as one who sees the face of God. 
And what this use of language indicates to us is that Jacob comes to realize that in all of his wrestlings, even with Esau, they are wrestlings with God. And we'll unpack this more in weeks to come. But remember that the wrestling matches that Jacob has been engaged in throughout his life are for his maturity. That God might make him glorious. That he might make him heavy. Yahweh who is glorious is making Jacob more like himself. And the Father and the Holy Spirit are doing the same to you and me. Making us more like Jesus, even as Paul relates in Romans 8, 26 to 30. Well, I trust that you can see some of the principles from this text and how they carry over to our own faith and experience. How the Lord makes us more like himself, how Jesus matures us, even through wrestlings in which we are engaged. First of all, notice that there are times when your obedience to God's word and command won't lead you out of trials and difficulties, but to the very center of them. Jacob was simply doing what the Lord had commanded him to do in returning to the land. And it was that faithfulness, that obedience, that led him to the predicament of Esau approaching fast with 400 men. Jacob had just been engaged with a 20-year wrestling match with Laban. And we might think that he deserves a break, a respite. But the Lord has other intentions for him, and it merely calls Jacob to wrestle again. Contrary to the teaching that we've encountered at one point or another, that obedience will lead to some higher spiritual plane, enabling you to put your life on cruise control and coast placidly into heaven, that's not what we see here. It wasn't the case for Jesus either, who perfectly obeyed his heavenly Father. He was met with all kinds of conflict for the entirety of his earthly ministry. So let's correct our thinking if that kind of false teaching in any way infects us, leading us to believe that obedience, that being a Christian, means an easier life. If anything, it means precisely the opposite. And that we'll have a harder life in some respects, even as we have to deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil. That the, that the world will hate us and other such things that we're, well, we're all acquainted with. But this doesn't mean our lives won't have joy, true joy and deep joy. Nor does it mean that faith isn't able to see the maturing work that God is doing in our lives, making us more like Jesus, who learned obedience through the things he suffered. We shouldn't expect it to be any different for us. And so let us be all the more resolved to walk in obedience and faithfulness to God's commands and promises, knowing it might be harder in some respects, but that it's also for our growing up, for our maturing for experiencing the deeper joy he has for us. Second, our prayers need to be firmly grounded in God's own word, for he has revealed to us the manner in which we're to approach him according to his promises. John Calvin compared God's promises and commands to two pillars that support prayer. And when our prayers are built upon these twin pillars, then there's a holy boldness to our prayers, for we are asking God for whatsoever he has promised And he graciously binds himself to us and becomes a voluntary debtor. Now, God the Father hasn't promised you a Ferrari, but he has promised you eternal life in him. He hasn't promised you a million dollars, but he has promised to make you more like Jesus, your Savior and King. God hasn't promised you an easy life, but he has promised you a life in which he works all things together for your good, conforming you to the image of God. Of his son. Third, a life of faithful prayer doesn't lead to indolence, 
but to faithful action. Notice that Jacob prays, but then he doesn't sit around on his hands and wait for God to strike down Esau and his 400 men with lightning bolts. No, he uses the means that are in his power and leaves the success of them to God. As Calvin observed, For though by prayer we cast our cares upon God, that we may have peaceful and tranquil minds, tranquil, tranquil minds, yet this security ought not render us indolent. For the Lord will have all the aids which he affords us applied to use. The pious, hoping for the success of their labor only from the mercy of God, apply their minds in seeking out means for this sole reason, that they may not bury the gifts of God by their own torpor. To put it another way, prayer ought not to produce lethargy, but an activity of mind and will and heart and hand. As Jacob also exemplifies for us, a life of true faith means that there will be times when we're afraid. But that fear shouldn't prevent us from being obedient to God. Faith acts in obedience to God's word despite the presence of fear. And maybe you immediately think, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief, which is a good place to start when dealing with fear and doubt. Nor should you be too hard on yourself if you find yourself afraid at times. Maybe you think your fear is surely the evidence of a weak faith. Fear doesn't necessarily mean an absence of faith. But faith acts in obedience despite the presence of fear. Faith takes that fear to the Father in prayer and readily confesses, Father, I'm afraid, but I know this is what your word says. This is what you've commanded. This is what you've promised that you will do if I obey you. I'm scared, but I'll obey. That's faith. Faith doesn't allow fear to be the deciding factor, but faith is directed by God's word. Faith is determined to obey. And brothers and sisters, I suspect we will need more and more of that kind of faith in the days that are coming, even has been the case in recent years, as our encounters with Laban's and Esau's continue to increase. So let us exercise a Jacob-like faith Wisely preparing, using the means at our disposal, while also praying in recognition that it's the Lord who must give such preparations success. Let us faithfully recognize that these encounters, trials, and afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, a heaviness that endures beyond this present life and world. And let us remember and believe God's promises as we continue in our striving to this glory and humble obedience to the God who is for us and is with us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the life of Jacob, for your recording it in your holy word and for the instruction that is here before us this day. Indeed, make us more like Jacob. Indeed, make us more like Christ. And so may our faith grow and mature as you would have us to, according to your word, strengthened by your spirit. Indeed, grant us these things and do as you have promised, we humbly ask. In Jesus' name, amen.